If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to NBN's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. Once again, uh, it's, it's your host, Geert, for today. And uh, I'm very excited to be joined today by Professor Ruszewski. Um, hello, Mark. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing fine. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Professor Ruszewski, together with, uh, with his colleague, uh, Professor Kant Patel, they uh, recently, well, this fall, their book is being published uh, called The Opioid Epidemic in the United States, Missed Opportunities and Policy Failures. Uh, it's published through Routledge. And, um, well, I'll, I'll leave it to Professor Ruszewski to, uh, to uh, explore the contents. Um, but before we do that, maybe you could uh, briefly introduce yourself, um, tell the listeners uh, how you came where you, where you are, professionally speaking. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm a political scientist uh, with Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. I am a retired uh, political scientist, so it's uh, Professor Emeritus. I retired in 2014, but I've continued to write uh, and actually to teach a little bit. So as my wife would say, I'm not fully retired yet. There's some jokes about that. We'll just skip those for now. Um, Patel and I have been writing, Kant Patel and I have been writing together um, since about 1990. And we've done a number of books. Uh, The major one that we've done is uh, Health Politics and Policy in the United States. And the fifth edition came out a couple of years ago. And uh, as part of that, in, in one of the chapters, there's about five or six pages devoted to the opioid epidemic in the United States. It's almost like a Reader's Digest version of the book that we decided to do. And um, we decided, and I will give Patel the the credit for it, this was basically his idea, that he wanted to uh, do a book that fully explored uh, the opioid epidemic. And uh, the title is a little bit misleading in two respects, because there's not one opioid epidemic. There's been several opioid epidemics. And the other part of it is that we have a chapter that looks at the opioid problem in other countries uh, and internationally. So it's a little bit broader than the the title would suggest. Um, So um, we we spent about a year and a half uh, putting the book together. Our publisher was very happy to uh, work with us on this, and the result is the book that's uh, just come out. Yeah, so I think the the historical overview is is well, it's super well referenced, and it's it's very uh, very broad. Um, 
in, in general, what what was the, the 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 main question you were trying to answer? Actually, well, we're asking um, why did this happen? Basically, um, what were the causes behind the, op- the various opioid epidemics? Who was responsible? What could have been done and what wasn't done? So the focus that we have is on uh, policy failures. This is in the subtitle and missed opportunities. There are um, places where things could have been done that wasn't weren't done, uh, where policies could have been enacted to go in a, a different direction and they weren't done. Um, and there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, one of the things um, we use, the old Walt Kelly, who did the Pogo cartoon, uh, and he has his main character saying, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I, I think that's a pretty good way of looking at who is responsible for the opioid, various opioid epidemics. And and with this, we, you mean everybody in the U.S.? Well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, that's probably a little overstated, but it's um, there's an awful lot of people. I mean, there's government agencies, there's private actors, there's... Um, you know, people on uh, on their own who you know the on on the addiction, um, a whole range of things from pharma, pharmaceutical companies to distributors to pill mills to doctors and and things like that. There's just a lot of a lot of people to blame for this. It's not just one person or one group of people. Yeah, very hard to pinpoint uh, and uh, very well a wicked problem, uh, so to say. Um, maybe because, well, I, I guess many of our listeners are to some degree familiar with the current crisis, but could you, um, maybe go, go about a bit about the, the first two crises as well that, uh, that you describe in the book, um, what happened in the, in the first opiate, uh, opiate crisis? Well, let me, I want to start a little further back because there, there's a fair amount of history in the book. It's not just political science stuff. Um, opioid Opium's been around for a long time, uh, and it's a, it's a it's a painkiller. It's been used as a painkiller, and um, you could see this. Uh, I I think we cite that opium was been used back since four thousand BC. So that's a that's a long time. <clears throat> um, you could see this in the Civil War when morphine, which is an opioid, was used as a way of uh, killing pain, which created a bunch of uh, morphine addicts, uh, which was really a problem. And then you look at the uh, whole drug situation in the United States, uh, where there was virtually no regulation of anything in the 19th and early 20th century. And then the Harrison Act comes in in around 1914, and and it pretty much says all drugs are illegal and using drugs are bad. Uh, and, and that's kind of the way we looked at uh, drugs uh, for a long time. And for a substantial portion, we, we're still doing that. Um, so we had um, a period uh, when the, the drug war begins. <clears throat> and again, we, we think of the drug war as uh, beginning with Richard Nixon in 1971 because he used the phrase. But you can go back to the Eisenhower administration and they were talking about the drug problem, and they kind of used the phrase "war on drugs," not not officially, 
by the time Nixon comes in, there are drug problems. And the, a major drug problem uh, was heroin, which is an opioid, uh, and particularly among those who served in Vietnam. Um, drugs were uh, pretty widely available in Vietnam. If I can go aside and tell a little anecdote about this. Please do. I, I was in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. I never went to Vietnam. And I, uh, one of the people I served with wanted to go to Vietnam, and he, he asked to go to Vietnam, and our base commander kept turning him down and finally said, okay, go. <clears throat> so he went to Vietnam, and, and then I saw him uh, a couple of years after I got out. We got out. I was in graduate school, and he came by, and he said, why in the world? Because this, this guy was like a beatnik-type person. Uh, why in the world would you go to want to go to Vietnam. You know, 53,000 people died there. Uh, and he said, the marijuana was really great. <laughs> uh, and I, oh my. that's the kind of thing that you had with with heroin. So the, the Nixon administration was really concerned about two things. One about heroin among Vietnam veterans, and the other was about marijuana, which was associated with... Um, minority groups, just like opium had been associated with Chinese. Um, there, there were two opium wars in the 19th century between Britain and China. Britain wanted to continue selling, China didn't. Um, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act, and we just saw the Chinese as, you know, having these opium dens and so forth. And we tended to identify particular drugs with particular groups of people. So opium in the early years was with uh, the Chinese. Heroin in the late 1960s, early 70s with veterans. Uh, marijuana with minority groups. <clears throat> and so Nixon declared this war on drugs. Um, and there's an argument that could be made, uh, and we make this in the book, um, about where that kind of fits into Nixon's strategy. He, he ran in... Um, for president in 1968 with what was called the Southern Strategy, <clears throat> which was aimed very much at um, uh, Democrats uh, in the, the South. There's been a lot of change in political makeup between the two parties uh, since then, uh, and which is kind of an anti-Black strategy. Um, and we also have a quote from one of his aides, John Ehrlichman, saying that the real reason behind the war on drugs was the Vietnam veterans, they were anti-war and minority groups mm -hmm. uh, more than the drugs themselves. Uh, so you started seeing some of this. And one of the things that happened is um, 1970, Congress passed the Controlled Substance Act. And this is what sets up the schedule of drugs. So uh, depending on uh, what the drug is and its medical use, it gets more or gets less um, government regulation. A lot of opioids that we're going to talk about are actually Schedule II drugs. <clears throat> so that's that's kind of the first one, first part of this. Um, a second part, well, the, the first part is uh, the opioids in the 20th, early 20th century. This is the second part. The third part, and there's stuff that goes on in between, uh, begins around 1995 uh, when the FDA approves OxyContin made by uh, Purdue Pharma. Uh, and that starts the current wave of the opioid epidemic, which is 
taken depending on who you talk to as many as 730,000 deaths from 2000 to about 2019. What are the, what's the lower end of the estimation? Because the lower end is about uh, 680,000, something like that. It's a considerable amount. Um, So that's, that's the three uh, periods. And then you have sort of the, the waves. And this is a, Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, idea that there were three waves of uh, opioids uh, that were being misused. Uh, and one was, first was prescription opioids, which is what started in, the, in the 1999 and particularly 2000. Uh, and then it moved to heroin and then it moved to fentanyl. And heroin is more powerful than the prescription drugs. It's less expensive Fentanyl is much more powerful than heroin. It's less expensive. Uh, So you have the three periods. You have these three different waves, uh, depending on uh, what time period we're talking about. Yeah, Yeah, I see. Would you say that there's, um, in terms of the, the, I mean, you've spoken spoken of the the image and the, the ethnic association, but would you say that there's a profound difference between the, actual problem on the, on the, on the ground um, between the three uh, crises? Well, yeah. Um, <clears throat> they hit different sets of people. And the biggest one, of course, was this, this third one that begins in 1995, 2000. Uh, so the, <clears throat> if, and I'm going to go back a little bit and get, get to your thing. So we talked about the Nixon administration. The Reagan administration faced a different drug problem, which was the crack cocaine epidemic. And then the Clinton administration faced a different problem, uh, though it clearly overlaps the opioid epidemic, which was methamphetamines. Uh, So this is all part of the the war on drugs and the emphasis on punishment and interdiction and incarceration and things like that. uh, Those epidemics those issues involved a different sets of people. So if you looked at um, the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, in the ni- particularly in the 1980s, uh, we're talking about urban blacks, um, minority groups. <clears throat> if you're talking about the opioid epidemic in the 21st century, we're talking about, and this is a stereotype, of um, working lower class whites in particular areas of the country. So let me state, first of all, that the United States has the worst opioid epidemic problem in the world. Canada is number two, but it's a far number, far away number two. Uh, and the opioid epidemic, and this, this is true in Canada as well, is, uh, was at least at first limited in uh, where it was taking place. So in the United States, Uh, It was in Appalachia, and in particular, it was in this corridor uh, that included Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And the people who lived there were lived in rural areas. Uh, They were low-income areas. The healthcare systems in those areas were very underdeveloped. Um, The level of education was lower than in other places. Uh, and there was a lot of economic distress because you, uh, coal was big, but then coal is less big 
than it used to be. There used to be auto plants there. Auto plants have moved away. So there was a lot of economic distress. Um, and that was a factor in this. Now, having said that, let's go back one step. Opioids compared to these other things have legitimate medical purposes. So what they do do is deal with pain. Okay. And that, that was what the prescription opioids were doing. Uh, pain was a real thing. We decided in the uh, 1990s that uh, pain was an important thing to look at. Um, and you, we started developing societies, the American Society for Pain Management and, and things like that. And um, prescribing opioids, which is a Schedule II drug, was allowed by the states. Unlike all these other things, cocaine and methamphetamine and marijuana, marijuana, you know, now we think has some legitimate medical uses. You start with the medical uses. Fentanyl has legitimate medical uses. Uh, but there was a problem with how they were used. Uh, and we, we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I figure. Yeah, that's an, that in, well... I, perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong, but uh, it does sound like an interesting parallel between the first and the third wave of, wave of opioids because, uh, well, I guess the first wave, wave of opioids back in the 19th and early 20th century was also started by, well, medical use of, of morphine, right? Yes, but then you started bringing the, 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 chi- the opium trade from yep. China and you know Chinese immigrants coming in. So it kind of morphed away from... Uh, <clears throat> morphine. I, that's a terrible way. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, 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 the stage is set, I guess. Um, um, now your book is about policy. Before we move into the, the, the opioid policy or the opiate policy, what is policy, uh, in, in your opinion? Okay. So there's a lot of, definitions in the public policy literature, and I'm not going to bore your audiences with all of that. Um, There's one that I like, which is really fits nicely with uh, what we're talking about, which is the decision to do or not to do something. Um, uh, And it's not a one decision, but a series of decisions over a period of time. Um, So you may have something that's pretty significant, but there's a lot of other things that are going on. So government can decide to do something. Government can decide not to do something. Um, There's a whole discussion about, you know, why they may decide to do something. Uh, And in the case of opioids, there are a lot of indicators uh, that were out there that we could look at. Uh, We could look at just like we do with the um, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we could look at uh, overdoses. Um, we could look at hospitalizations. We could look at emergency ward uh, visits. Um, there's the federal government, U.S. federal government has the um, an early warning system called DAWN. Uh, we could look at deaths. And all of these become indicators that there's a problem. The uh, question is whether government is going to deal with that. But if the problem becomes significant enough. Uh, if there's enough people who are being affected by this, then government is 
probably going to take a look at it. That's the simplest way. We can go into more, but that's a different book. Yeah, of course. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, and, well, you've touched upon the first one. So what was the government response in the in the first opiate uh, wave? Was it just the Harrison Act? Or was there well, something that, that was the main thing. The, the Harrison Act and trying to keep the Chinese out through the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, everything with the Harrison Act, everything is illegal. All these drugs are illegal. You know, cocaine, Coca-Cola, one of its ingredients was cocaine. That's where the coca thing comes from. And it was a lot of these patent medicines and no regulations. You could do whatever you wanted. And the uh, health, the uh, medical uh, profession was not well developed yet. That didn't happen until early in the uh, 20th century. Um, and it, it was, you know, we, we talk about the Wild West in, in the 19th century America. And that's kind of the way it was with uh, with medications. I mean, you, you have these guys, you know, saying that this, um, I'm going to give you this elixir and it's going to, you know, cure all of the ails that you have, even the some you don't know that you have. <clears throat> so certainly some regulation needed to be done. Um, whether it needed to be done that way, you know, wholesale, everything is illegal, using drugs or immoral. That's kind of an interesting question. Um, so government's response was, Okay, let's keep the Chinese out because they bring in opium with them, and then all of these drugs are illegal, and it stayed that way for a long time. And and so you you also give a brief evaluation of the of the Harrison Act or of the policy response in general. Uh, what would you say? Well, they weren't terribly effective. I mean, people were able to get the drugs that they wanted. Uh, there aren't enough um, law enforcement people to, there still aren't enough to wipe out the thing, assuming that that's actually a good idea. Um, and so, it, you know, it was, I don't want to say, it, it was the version of, it was the earlier version of prohibition, just didn't have a constitutional amendment to it. Um, and we know that while there was a decline in use in prohibition of alcohol during prohibition, uh, there, there was still alcohol that was being made and consumed, uh, during that time period. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Um, but it, it, it well, it, it does sound, uh, the, the government response in, the, uh, well, in, in general sounds sort of similar, um, to the war on drugs uh, uh, that started in the 60s, no? General um, Prohibition. Yeah, except that um, they didn't have the, they weren't doing the interdiction kinds of things. It was just, it was illegal. We'll prosecute you if you have it, that kind of thing. But uh, it it didn't go all that much beyond it's illegal and if we catch you, as opposed to there were, uh, all kind. There was treatment involved, even with the war on drugs. That's an interesting thing about Richard Nixon <clears throat> in the war on drugs is that uh, he probably put more emphasis on treatment than his successors did. Um, Nixon's an interesting character. At, again, I don't want to uh, um, go off on an, another tangent, but uh, there were there were some good ideas he had. Whether the war on drugs was a good idea is I think that's questionable, but I think the treatment was. Uh, you, if you have people who are addicted, why not go out and help them? Um, we never put enough money. We 
still do not put enough money into treatment. Uh, and most of the treatment is, uh, is privately run. Um, there's been some help in recent years, but um, most of the money, law enforcement, interdiction, uh, incarceration. So I, I I think there's been uh, there there's been quite the quite the shift. Well, you you already pointed that out uh, with the prime example of the of the of the contrast between um, looking at the the crack cocaine epidemic and what user group that had uh, compared to the user group of the um, uh, of the third opioid opioid wave. Um, what was the What was the main difference between uh, the, the policy reactions now? I mean, compared to then? Yeah, between the between the second and the third wave. Well, is is the, it as is it as clear cut as it seems? Well, I I don't know that it's all that clear cut. I think there's some the the Obama administration put less emphasis, which is not the same as no emphasis, uh, on the law enforcement stuff and a little bit more on treatment. Um, The Trump administration, um, there were some laws that were passed that were had some treatment-oriented stuff, but I, I, there wasn't really that much change. It was didn't seem to be a particular emphasis of the Trump administration. And the Biden administration, uh, as far as I can tell, hasn't done all that much. Uh, there's the American Cares Act, which passed in uh, January of this year, 2021, um, has broadened um, um, Medicare and Medicaid a little bit and the Affordable Care Act. And so there are more treatment options uh, that we have. You know, the other thing is that we ought to point out about the second and third period, and particularly the crack cocaine uh, opioid period, uh, the 2000 period, is not that just they were different groups, but how they were viewed. So in the earlier periods, uh, the uh, Nixon period and the Reagan period, uh, they were viewed as bad people. Uh, of course, they were minority groups, uh, and it was their fault that they were addicted. Uh, with at least the beginning of the opioid epidemic in 2000 or so, uh, again, lower white, middle, lower white uh, working class, um, they were viewed much more favorably and said, well, you know, it's not really their fault and um, we're not going to punish them. Uh, they would punish some of the people who were pushing the stuff. Um, and the media did that as well. There's the difference in uh, how the media portrayed them uh, is, is uh, really interesting. Um, There's some documentaries that have come out. In fact, there's one that's coming out next week, uh, October 13th, uh, called Dope Sick, based on a book by Sam Canones, which is a wonderful book. I highly recommend that to everybody. <laughs> um, but it's one of a series of books that look very, and documentaries, that look very favorite. <clears throat> I don't want to say that, that look um, with compassion, uh, that's the best way you put it, with compassion uh, to those who were addicted uh, to opioids. You didn't get that so much with uh, the, particularly the crack cocaine epidemic uh, or the, those who were uh, involved with the 
the drugs during the original war on drugs. So there's some difference differences in how we viewed them, differences in uh, the the policies that we had to to a certain extent, and um, I <clears throat> I think that makes something of a difference. You know, we don't. <clears throat> We don't really have a crisis. Nobody's calling it an emergency uh, because of the opioid crisis, though Trump did do that at one point. Um, so, but it, it wasn't nearly the same emphasis that we had in earlier years, including the Clinton years. <clears throat> one of your chapters is about the this perfect storm. Um, that that ha- that happened in the nineties. Could you could you explain a bit about that and what the role of the different agencies was in this? <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> let's go back to what I said earlier, uh, which is that um, opioids have a legitimate medical purpose, which is to treat people with who have pain. Um, that's an interesting issue to deal with pain because. Um, at least back then, there was no way to objectively observe how much pain somebody had. You would ask somebody how much pain you're in. I know that there are <clears throat> cancer patients, uh, and I can think of a former colleague uh, who died of cancer, who was incredible in is was in incredible pain and uh, was taking morphine. And for the, the those three months that he was suffering from this, he was in and out of consciousness on that. And the morphine eased this this kind of thing. So you you have people who are in pain. There's, there's no question that there are people who suffer from chronic pain issues or acute pain issues. Um, then you had uh, the beginning of development of pain medications by companies like Pharma and uh, like Purdue and J&J. Uh, and uh, Oxycontin, as I mentioned earlier, gets FDA approval in 1995. And then you have the medical profession um, looking at pain as uh, the phrase that was used was the fifth vital sign. So when you see somebody, you say, well, you know, what's your temperature? What's your blood pressure? How's your heart doing? Are you feeling any pain? Uh, And uh, there was, as I said, journals, there were societies, uh, there was state legislation that uh, allowed doctors to prescribe. Uh, the FDA uh, also allowed the use of pain medications. Uh, and so you had this situation. You had the uh, <clears throat> pain in the patients. You had medical societies that were moving to treating pain. And you had this medication. So that, that's kind of the, the perfect storm on this. Uh, the problem was that uh, this was not done well, uh, which is what led to the addictions. So I may be anticipating one of your questions. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the, 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 one of the questions was, is, are opioids addictive? And the pharmaceutical companies said, no, they weren't addic- addictive. And there's an interesting, and there were some studies that they cited. The most interesting one was a letter to the uh, New England Journal of Medicine in ni- as far back as 1981, 
So there was a study conducted in a hospital of uh, patients who had undergone surgery. They were taking opioids, I believe morphine, while they were recovering in the hospital, and then they were released. And the letter said nobody got addicted while they were taking the opioids in the hospital. That was then translated into opioids are not addictive. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you took a a very limited situation. Okay. A very short period of time under doctor's care in a hospital. And you extrapolate that to the larger world. Opioids are not addictive. And and that's the the first part of where the pharmaceutical companies uh, come in uh, because um, they make money by selling their medications. Uh, And um, when people started getting addicted, well, there were a couple of things. Um, Pharma, and there's a lot of, um, not pharma, Purdue Pharma, there's a lot of um, number of books that focus on Purdue Pharma. And and there's a documentary that just came out a couple of months ago that focuses on um, Purdue Pharma based on the book. Um, was, Was not the biggest um, it, at most had about 25% of the market, but it was really aggressive in marketing. Um, and there, there's a whole literature on pharmaceutical companies marketing their, uh, products to, um, doctors. Um, and <clears throat> the doctors were kind of amenable to this. Um, and pharma was one of the more aggressive ones, both in saying it's not addictive and saying you should use the product because it, you know, it's really good and it, it helps the people. Um, the problem was that a patient could take um, the Oxycontin and they could crush the Oxycontin and they could take it directly and they would get it addictive because not only does uh, <clears throat> opioids relieve pain, but it also hits your pleasure centers. Uh, one of the things we said is, you know, you get pleasure from eating or you get pleasure from sex. This is higher than either of those things, or even maybe both of them combined. Um, and once you do that, you say, oh, we like that. Uh, so let's let's do this again. That's how addiction works. Mm. Okay. So, and at the same time, pharma is saying, you know, some of the patients aren't responding as well as we would as we would like pharma, I'm, I keep saying pharma Purdue. Um, why don't we have, why don't we use bigger doses? So you could go from say 20 milligrams to 120 milligrams and you get a bigger dose, you get a bigger high and they make more money out of this. So uh, Purdue's marketing people were pushing for doctors to do higher doses and they were doing that. Okay. Uh, another problem that you had was um, when there was more concern about uh, increasing concern about addiction, a uh, pharma changed its formulation so it was more time release thing and said, "Well, you couldn't, you couldn't really uh, crush it and get the, the same kind of effect." The problem was that the time release pills were supposed to work for twenty four hours. But like a lot of time release pills, uh, the cold medication is a good example of this. They don't work for 24 hours. Maybe they work for 10 hours, but you're not supposed to take another pill. But 
if you were getting high on this, your brain is saying, I want more on this, you start taking more of the pills. Yeah. Uh, and so you you have uh, Purdue saying it's not addictive. We have our studies to show that it's not addictive, which as a number of books have shown were incorrect. Um, we want you to use higher doses. Um, and we're, we're going to really push this thing. Uh, the other companies, J&J is another one, um, we're doing similar kinds of things. And that begins to create the addiction based on prescription uh, opioids. So that's that first wave that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Okay. And then what happens is um, that as the overdoses and the deaths from them start becoming more apparent, uh, the state government and federal government starts taking notices, but they, they take their time. For example, CDC uh, issued its first alert in 2006 and its first guidelines for using opioids in 2011. So that you have all of this time when there were no guidelines on this. <clears throat> what the state started doing was, um, well, <clears throat> and there's other things going on. You started having doctors who would just fill prescriptions. You know, you'd come in with a fake prescription. They'd give you a whole bunch of pills, some of which you would take, some of which you would sell. You'd get them at these pill mills. There were pill mills in Florida, for example. Um, the pharmaceutical companies were sending millions of pills. Um, I don't have the number in front of me because I don't want to rustle any paper. But you might have a small a town of like 31,000. And over a two-year period, they'd have millions of pills being shipped to that town. Okay. Well, they weren't all given as prescription med- prescription medications. They were being sold. So you had... That was another aspect of this. Um, the second wave begins when the states start regulating. And one of their uh, policies was prescription drug monitoring programs, um, which were a little late coming. Uh, my home state of Missouri just adopted it. It's the last state in the country. Mm-hmm. To have a prescription drug monitoring program, and the when, idea when did the first ones uh, come in. The first ones, um, I, I think California was among the first mm-hmm. uh, to do this, uh, and that may be. And I, I'm, I don't have this in front of me, so I might be off a little bit. They may have done this as early as the 1990s, so mm-hmm. they were really early. But most of them come in in the in the 2000s, um, in the 2010s. Um, and so what you had with people who were addicted were doctor shopping. Uh, so you get a prescription from this doctor and then you go to another doctor and you get another prescription and they take it to a pharmacy and the pharmacies would fill all of these. And they, there's another story there with the pharmacies like CVS and, uh, Walgreens and, and Walmart, uh, would just kind of fill these things, um, so with the prescription drug monitoring program, if they worked right, uh, anytime an opioid was prescribed, it would go into this registry. And the, the doctor could look at them. There was no mandate to look at them. Mm. Uh, it depended on the state. And the pharmacies could look at this also and say, well, you've this is the hundredth prescription you've given in two months or something like that. We're not going to do this. But it 
between the prescription drug uh, pharmacy programs and the reformulation of um, the uh, opioid medications, prescription medications, uh, the addicts were finding it more, and which also raised the price uh, of prescription drugs. Uh, the addicts were looking for something else, so they moved to heroin. Heroin was cheaper, it was easily available, it was stronger, uh, and then they would move to fentanyl, which is way stronger. Um, and so there you, there you have it. So you have this perfect storm, and you've got millions of people who are involved with this. And and the so um, uh, what about the FDA and the DEA in this uh, in this whole story? Um, when did the because well now by now it's becoming sort of a, a front page story or, or well known story about the opioid crisis? Um, what has the government response been so far in terms of policy? Well, the um, there's. Uh, from the federal government standpoint, there's payment for treatment, uh, for example, through uh, uh, policies like Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid will pay for treatment for addiction. Um, Medicaid was um, lambasted uh, because in the early years, Medicaid would pay for the prescriptions for its uh, Medicaid recipients. Uh, some people have blamed Medicaid for the uh, epidemic, which is unfair because insurance companies were doing that before Medicaid got into it and continued uh, to do that. So Medicaid will start paying for some treatment. Um, I think Medicare is now doing some of that. There's more money going to states to pay for treatment. Uh, but there's also... Um, the interdiction thing, you know, let, let's, um, the law enforcement thing, let's uh, charge doctors who are obviously misusing this. Let's close down the pill mills that are providing these things. So it's a, it's a range of things uh, that government has done uh, at the, the federal and, and the, the state level uh, to, to deal with this. Probably not adequate to the nature and the extent of the problem. Mm, okay, that, that was what I was going to ask so far because we're right in the middle of this, of course, but so far, uh, what would your evaluation be? Is it going in the right direction? Well, um, not really. There was, um, in 2018, there was a decline in uh, opioid deaths, but since then, it's gone up, and there's new data for uh, 2020 that showed that there were 90, uh, again, I don't have this in front of me, but I think there were 93,000 drug overdose deaths, uh, which is a considerable increase over previous year, uh, and about two-thirds of those were due to opioids, wow. uh, and that's one, that's one problem. The other problem, uh, and this is really recent, we're talking about the last couple of weeks, uh, we have seen um, fentanyl uh, being mixed with illegal pills, legal medical, I mean, pain pills. Uh, and because fentanyl is so much powerful, that's really dangerous. Fentanyl is also being mixed with methamphetamines. Um, and while there is treatment uh, for overdose, uh, there's uh, several drugs like naloxone uh, that states have allowed uh, to be used, um, 
there's no treatment for methamphetamine. So what you're getting is you're getting the methamphetamine effect and you're getting the fentanyl effect. And that's a, that's a massive effect, which is not good for the health of the person who's using that. So the problem hasn't gone away, but up until recently, it has been sort of hidden by the COVID epidemic, uh, which, you know, <clears throat> we're over 700,000 deaths in a year. So clearly it's more significant than the opioid epidemic, but the opioid epidemic has this uh, 20 year uh, range of which it, it's, it's been a problem. Uh, so I, I don't think we're putting enough money. I don't think there are enough treatment programs. Treatment for addicts is really difficult anyway. Um, I know somebody, and I'm not going to go into the nature of this, who is a meth addict for 21 years, who has now been clean for the last three or four years, and he did it on his own. That's really rare. Uh, what you have is people who go into um, treat addiction treatment, and maybe they go through it, maybe they don't. They come out, they're okay for a while, and then they start taking again. So they'll go into it four, five, six, seven times. Um, and maybe they'll get cured of the addiction and maybe not. Um, but there aren't enough treatment facilities. The treatment facilities, the private ones are, are particularly expensive. Um, so we don't have enough treatment. There's still interdiction. Uh, the DEA um, recently uh, confiscated enough well, I, again, I don't know the numbers because I don't have it right in front of me, but um, a massive amount of fentanyl um, that uh, they said could just by itself could have killed a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, the stuff is still going on. We're still doing the interdiction. We're probably not doing as much incarceration uh, with the opioid epidemic as we did with uh, particularly the crack cocaine uh, epidemic, which really led to a massive increase in um in the incarceration in the United States, a cocaine epidemic, not so much, What you have instead are lawsuits. And, you know, that, that is another subject that we can, we can go into. Yeah, yeah I see. Um, um, well, I, I wouldn't want to skip the, the before last chapter, um, speaking about the, the global context. Um, you, well, I've got basically two questions. So, First of all, you, you choose there. There's uh, several countries that you that you uh, mentioned. It's it's Canada, Mexico, India, Nigeria, and West Africa, I believe. Um, what, why these countries? Uh, uh, what? How have they been hit um, as a consequence? I guess of the U.S. epidemic. Okay. Um, well, let's start with Canada. Uh, Canada, as I mentioned earlier, is number two in opioid epidemics and deaths and so forth, mostly in the Western region. Um, and a, their system is, a, you know, their health system is different from ours. So they could actually pay for treatment if they were doing the treatment. Um, but they were also subject to um marketing. They were subject to television and, you know, all of the things that went on in the United States, you could see in Canada um, and um, Purdue. And I got it right this time saying Purdue first uh, had, had a marketing company called Mundi Pharma. Uh, and so when their market for prescription opioids uh, started contracting a little bit, they looked to overseas markets and Canada was a good place to do that. And 
there's a lot of, I don't want to offend any of my Canadian friends, there's a lot of resemblance between the United States and, and Canada. And, uh, you know, we, we share this long border, which for the most part is unguarded until, I guess, the, fairly recently. Um, and so that, that's why that was picked. Uh, Mexico was picked uh, because they have a lot of drug issues, plus they're involved very much in trafficking. And we wanted to get a, a Latin American perspective on this. Interesting about the, these other three countries, Mexico, India, and Nigeria, they don't have the drug problem, drug use problem. Uh, it's more of manufacturing and, um, and selling. Um, a little bit of exception in, in India and um Nigeria, the, if there's any opioid uh, addiction, it's to a, a weaker opioid called tramadol, uh, which I know from my pet's experience. I've had a, a dog that was on tramadol, and I said he's an opioid ad, uh, addict. You know, I have one of those in my house. <laughs> um, but Mexico had um, was a, a source of uh, trafficking for cocaine, for example. Uh, they're a source of um, black tar heroin into the United States. San Canona's book says, spells that out very nicely. Um, they have become an increasing source of manufacturing fentanyl. Uh, the, the major source of fentanyl is the People's Republic of China. Uh, so that was Mexico. India, I think partly was because my co-author, Dr. Patel, is originally from India. Um, there's to the extent that there's any addiction issues, it's uh, again tramadol, but they're the major manufacturer of tramadol, and so and they're also in um, the northern areas. Is there's a lot of trafficking in in northern uh, India, and some of that trafficking goes through Nigeria and some of the West African countries, uh, and so again there's some um, addiction. Um, interestingly, more among women in Nigeria than among men, but uh, there's uh, there's been a big <clears throat> I, I hate to use the word crackdown on uh, uh, drugs in Nigeria due to a lot of pressure from the United States. Uh, United States works with other countries through international organizations and uh, with one on one. Uh, diplomacy and, and foreign aid and things like that to stem uh, traffic. And, you know, and then the country that we didn't talk about that we should is Afghanistan. Uh, they're the major grow, of, major grow of opium in the world. Um, and while the Taliban, when it first was in power, tried to cut back on it, um, and when the United States came in and overthrew the, the Taliban regime and tried to get the farmers to move off of opioid farming. Turns out that opioid farming is just, opium farming is just much more easier and more uh, profitable than doing, you know, the cash crop kind of thing. Um, But you don't see the addiction in these other countries as much because there's a, I think a cultural bias against uh, doing that. Um, In India, for example, it's, you know, using these alternative, uh, uh, Eastern uh, techniques for dealing with things like pain. In the United States, um, we have a culture of, uh, I don't feel well, there's got to be a pill to, to deal with that or some other medication. So 
taking pills and all of the advertisement, direct to consumer advertising that we have, which we don't, which you have in, you got in Canada, they were watching American TV, uh, but you don't have in Mexico, um, Nigeria, or India. Uh, to the extent that there's in Mexico, there's addiction, it tends to be in the areas that border the southern United States. So that that's the uh, the picture of uh, these four countries. That's why we picked those four countries. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, well, what you just said it does lead into uh, what I always wonder about. I'm I'm from the Netherlands, Western European, uh, and um, in in certain in a certain sense, we we see we see ourselves as uh, sort of similar to the to the Americans. I would say. Um, the the other day, I had I had the opportunity to go to a talk by uh, Mr. Uh, Patrick Rannan Keefe, uh, who did the book Empire of Pain on on the Sackler family. And so you you, uh, you present a big piece of the the puzzle, like it's the, it's the policy uh, that that enabled the the opioid crises. Um, and Mr. And Mr. Keefe says, uh, well, it's it's also a large part is the the, the agency of such a big and powerful family with their marketing uh, marketing apparatus. Um, do you think that there's a? Um, l- let me state it like this: Do do you think uh, Americans in general are in more pain than than most other uh, people? Oh, no, I, I don't see how anybody could possibly say that. Um, I see. You, know, with, you know, humans are humans. It doesn't matter where they are. Uh, I don't think there's. I, I don't think we have a market on pain in the United States. Mm-mm. We're we're all very sensitive to the uh, opioid uh, seductions. Well, I I don't think I don't think you know you don't really see it in in Western of that matter or Eastern Europe the opioid. I think part of that is there's much more regulation of pharmaceuticals in Europe than there is in the United States. Uh, and it's not just prices, you know, what what can be used and how much and things like that. And, and we don't do very much of that. No, it makes perfect sense. All right. Well, we're already almost at an hour. Um, thanks so much for uh, for all the, uh, for this, this big introduction, the overview of the book. Uh, there's so much more in there. Uh, but well, I guess that's uh, up to uh, up to the listeners to read that for themselves. Um, before we leave, I, I would like to ask you, uh, what are you currently working on? Uh, is it with your colleague? Uh, um, we ha- we have a book in mind, and that's as far as it goes. <clears throat> From my part, uh, Patel has a um, has a book kind of sketched out, and we're kind of waiting for things to settle down. Uh, with this one, um, that looks at the issue of partisanship in the United States, uh, and we have, and I'm not going to say what the angle is on that, but it, it's an uh, it's an interesting angle uh, on things, and, and you can see this in um, things like the pan- the pandemic and and how it's being viewed and uh, uh, how it's being regulated in, in different parts of the country, and, and that. That that's I think going to be our next project. All right. Of course, Exciting. at some point, at some point, we're going to re- totally retire from doing any of this stuff, but uh, we're not <laughs> quite there yet. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope that uh, lasts for a little longer. Thanks so much for uh, for this great talk, and um, well, uh, we'll talk next time. Who knows?
Thank you. I enjoyed this.